This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener, and this is our Year in Review show. We've talked a lot recently on this show about the lessons of the midterms and about the horrors of the Kavanaugh hearings. Today, we want to turn to some other topics. In a lot of ways, Trump himself was the biggest story. We'll ask Amy Willens the question, is Trump crazy? And the biggest story of the year for all of humanity has been catastrophic climate change. Bill McKibben says it's not just an environmental issue. He'll explain why later in this hour. But first, it's time for a Russiagate update, something we haven't done here for a while. There have been many plot twists in the story of Russia's efforts to help Trump win the election, but basically what we have is a corruption scandal, one that should bring down Trump's presidency. For that, we turn to David Cleon. He writes for the New York Times op-ed page, The Guardian, Salon, and The Nation, mostly about U.S.-Russian relations. We reached him today in Brooklyn. David Cleon, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Well, it's true that Russiagate has been overhyped at times, but you say that at its core, it's a well-documented political corruption scandal that's not very complicated. Uh, please explain what we know at this point. You know, there's, there's what we know and what we can be pretty sure of from, from the public and reputable reporting. And what we know is that uh, repeatedly through... Uh, the 2016 election, the Trump campaign was approached by various Russian or Russian-affiliated figures. There's some controversy over whether we can call them agents or not, but, you know, people with ties to the Kremlin and who, who seem to be reaching out for various shady purposes. And we know that basically every Trump-connected official involved in that has lied to federal investigators at one point or another about it. We know that Paul Manafort, his campaign manager, has pleaded guilty to that. We know that Manafort has tried to undermine this investigation and, and gotten additional charges for it. We know that Trump 
fired James Comey uh, and then pretty much outright said on, on national TV that he did it to try to shut down the Russia investigation. We know that Trump asked Russia to hack his opponent's emails, which people try to write off as a as a joke. But I mean, <laughs> you, you don't joke about stuff like that. I'm sure, Russia took the signal very clearly. What it all points to, whatever the, the details are that will emerge in due course, what it all points to is a coordinated effort by the Russian government to interfere in the election and in various ways hinder and sabotage Hillary Clinton's campaign. And clearly with some degree of cooperation from people around Trump and very likely Trump himself. And all of this, I think, has been pretty obvious all along. But uh, for various axe-grinding reasons, a lot of people resist these conclusions. So, seems like there was a quid pro quo. Russia would help Trump get elected, and what Russia wanted in return was for Trump to ease the sanctions that the Obama administration put into effect after the Russian military intervention in Ukraine in 2014, and Trump just didn't want help becoming president. He also wanted to make money. He wanted a big real estate deal in Moscow. And apparently in exchange for easing the sanctions on Russia, he would get hundreds of millions from the Russians and help building a Trump Tower in Moscow, which he's wanted to do for more than for more than a decade. Supposedly with a with a fifty million dollar penthouse for Vladimir Putin. Is that the, the latest thing that came out? Yes. Uh, which which never which never worked out. Now some of the things you just said I believe are most likely true, but I think given all the, the hype around it, we, we should be careful to say that you know, a lot of it is, is still speculative or not conclusively proven. It just you know, it all seems to be pointing that way. In particular, I think there's always been kind of an open question about how how much Donald Trump even intended to win the twenty sixteen election. Yes. yes. And and in fact since he often in his weird way, can can sometimes give real insights into the truth, even mm-hmm. though he's a liar. He was tweeting the other day after those um, Trump Tower Moscow stories were coming out. He was tweeting about, I, I didn't know if I was going to win the election, and uh, you know I was going to be in business afterwards, and then I wanted to make money, so there's nothing to see here, which <laughs> is a very revealing comment in, in that it's probably more or less true, not only that he didn't know if he was going to win, but I bet he, he thought he might not. And I bet a lot of the people around him thought he might not. And so with that in mind, they felt that there was nothing improper about, you know, cutting international deals, which pose huge conflicts of interest for someone running for president, let alone winning. I've always tried to argue that Russiagate is best seen as as part of a larger pattern of Trump and the people around him working with foreign governments in a corrupt and unsavory way that's not limited to Russia at all, and is also not limited to Trump and the people around him at all, but that in fact has been much too tolerated for much too long and reflects an endemic culture of, of silly corruption in the United States. And in fact, in The Nation magazine, your recent piece, you say that the Trump organization is basically an international money laundering scheme. You want to explain that? Well, yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of reporting to that effect, much of which doesn't really concern Russiagate or only tangentially does. The, the Trump family, uh, beginning with, with his father, Fred Trump, used to be a real real estate developing family that, you know, built actual physical housing in Brooklyn and Queens and 
later built towers all over Manhattan, and and uh, there are all kinds of things you can say about them, but but they they were what they appeared to be more or less. But in the past generation, they've kind of shifted from that model to a sort of international branding model, where they sold off all their actual properties, and this has been extensively reported on by the New York Times and elsewhere. And instead, they um, they they basically sell the Trump name and affix it to buildings to connote a kind of gaudy wealth. And they do this all over the world. And nobody is really clear how much money Trump actually has, and he won't release his tax returns. And nobody is 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 clear, you know, what what the Trump organization actually does. But it is clear that they've worked with organized crime in the U.S. and around the world. That they've worked with all kinds of governments that are less than transparent. And that the real estate industry to begin with is one of the, uh, I think Adam Davidson has written a lot about this yes. for the New Yorker, is, yes. is one of the most effective industries for moving around illicit sums of money. So, you know, when we ask ourselves, like, why, why is Trump so rich and why are his kids so rich when they seem to have no actual business acumen, the answer is uh, they've, they've built a brand that despots and mafiosos around the world recognize as as very useful. And I think that carried them all the way to the presidency. Yes, and and some of those people, as you emphasize, some of those people are Russians, Russian oligarchs, Russians connected to the Kremlin and so on. And very clearly, in fact in fact quite a few people who I think rented out units in, in the original Trump Tower are. And of course, just to remind our listeners, the clearest case of Russian help for Trump becoming president came after Trump publicly asked Russia to help find Hillary's emails. And then when Trump most needed help, right after that Access Hollywood tape came out, WikiLeaks published documents that Russia had hacked from the DNC email accounts. Uh, When he needed help the most, he got it from Russian hacking. So they did their part to help him. You've also written in The Nation that we don't need Bob Mueller to tell us that Trump obstructed justice around these questions because we already know that. He publicly, bluntly admitted to the world that he fired James Comey to end the Russia investigation. You say Mueller has been telling us something else, what you describe as, quote, something much more frightening. What is that? Well, uh, in that piece that you're referring to, I talk about the hints that we've had that Russiagate also implicates Congress, uh, and specifically the Republicans in Congress. Um, so the the most infamous incident in this regard, but it's still not infamous enough, I think, where where there was a recording that was leaked of the senior Republican leadership in the House, so uh, Paul Ryan, Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, and they're... they're chatting about various things. And one of them says, you know, there, there's two people who I think Putin pays. There's there's Donald Trump, uh, then the Republican nominee for president. And there's uh, Dana Rohrabacher, who was a, uh, I guess he just lost his seat, but a Republican yes. congressman from California. Yes. And they all laugh about this. And uh, then they sort of pretend that it was a joke. And, and Ryan is like, you know, uh, uh, what happens in the family stays in the family or something like that. And um, and later when this was released in, in the post, the transcript of this, they all insisted that they had just been joking. But, you know, that's obviously ass covering. The, the reality is that there's lots of reason to think that Rohrabacher uh, 
you know, had some kind of corrupt relationship with Russia. And it's quite possible he's not the only one either. And and for that matter, there are plenty of reasons to think that other uh, members of Congress have corrupt relations with other countries, maybe in the Persian Gulf or China or wherever. But to my mind, it's it's not just that, you know, Trump or Rohrabacher do, but if if Paul Ryan and Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise all know this and they're all fine with it and they all have, you know, supported Trump through all of this, that makes them complicit in a significant way. I mean, that makes there there is a sense in which the whole GOP in, in Congress has been functioning as a as a giant criminal conspiracy. And I think what Mueller has done, I, I don't know how consciously, but what one reason that I think the left should support the Mueller investigation unreservedly and not not because we have some hero cult around Mueller or because Republican, you know, FBI agent is, is someone we should particularly admire or anything like that. But because what this investigation is doing is it is exposing so much of the corruption that has just been taken for granted in Washington for so long uh, and in New York real estate. And um, I think that has like an incredibly powerful function. And the left can also use it um, for its messaging, as I would say, candidates like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren have already been doing as they gear up to maybe run for president. And there's one other way in which the Republican Party is itself is part of the Russiagate scandal, and that has to do with when Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell was informed of Russian interference in September 2016, before the election, in a meeting with President Obama. Tell us what happened at that meeting. There was a meeting with uh, John Brennan, who I think was the head of the CIA at the time, and um, the heads of both parties in Congress and President Obama. And they were all informed of, of the intelligence community's unanimous assessment that there was an ongoing Russian attempt to interfere in the election. Uh, all of this was put forward to all of the most powerful people in Washington. And, and Obama wanted, I think, quite rightly to make a, a public statement to that effect several months before the election that uh, that this was happening and that the U.S. was going to take some some kind of steps uh, to respond to it. Um, and McConnell told him, McConnell being, of course, one of the most breathtakingly cynical men alive, that if Obama were to do this, then he would he would immediately say, well, no, this is not true. This is a, a partisan, you know, ploy to, to, to try to hurt Donald Trump. Uh, and he would undermine the whole thing and, and turn it into uh, into a partisan fight instead of what it should have been, which was a, a unifying national security threat. And what's, I think, a real failure on Obama's part is that he listened. McConnell, of course, was thwarting Obama throughout his presidency in various ways. But in this case, I feel like the the correct move for Obama would have been to give the speech anyway, and in the speech, tell the American people Mitch McConnell was briefed on the same thing, and he chose to put his party ahead of the country. And, you know, all all but call him a traitor. Maybe do call him a traitor. And, And if Obama were tougher, I think he could have threatened to do that uh, at that meeting and uh, seen how McConnell responded. But instead, he did nothing. He thought that it would be improper for him to uh, put it, put his finger on the scales in any way. And he also thought, as so many people unfortunately did, that, that Hillary Clinton had the election in the bag, and so this could all be worked out after. But I, I think, you know, we still know this, and, and we have to factor it into to what we think about McConnell and what we think about 
every Republican in the Senate, including the so-called moderates and never Trumpers who who have uh, supported McConnell in his leadership role. Because, you know, I, I would say that at that moment that he told the president that he became an active participant in, in this interference scheme. I mean, very consciously. David Cleon, he writes about Russiagate. Read his new article, It's Time to Demystify Russiagate at TheNation.com. Thank you, David. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure. Anytime. Our next topic is a big one. Is Trump crazy? Republican Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee, who was chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, got the punditocracy going a while ago after one of Trump's tweets when Corker compared the White House to an adult daycare center and noted, quote, someone obviously missed their shift this morning, close quote. Since then, we've seen reports of people close to the president who say in private he is, quote, unstable, losing a step and unraveling. Trump reportedly said recently, quote, I hate everyone in the White House. Now we have a book where many psychiatrists express their professional opinions about the dangerous case of Donald Trump. That's the book's title. It got as high as number four on the New York Times bestseller list. For comment, we turn to Amy Willens. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, best known for her award-winning books on Haiti. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Before we take up the question, is Trump crazy, let's start with a little about the book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 27 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess the President. What exactly is this book? It's a collection of essays by well-known psychiatrists and mental health specialists looking at Trump's behavior during the campaign before the campaign and now since he's been president and trying to assess his mental health. Obviously, he's not their patient, so they haven't been in long therapy sessions with him. They do know a little bit, some of them, about his background, his family, etc. And they try to assess his uh, mental state. Well, this is relevant, they tell us, because of the 25th Amendment, which nobody really knew anything about until uh, January 20th, 2017. <laughs> the 25th Amendment is the other way a president can remo- be removed from office. There's impeachment, a vote by Congress, but there's also the 25th Amendment says if the majority of the cabinet determines that the president is, quote, unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, he can be removed. So we do want to know whether he is subject to the 25th Amendment. Uh, and the view of, uh, of these psychiatrists is that they are professionals. It's their job to recognize craziness. They've trained for years to do it. They do it all day long. They get paid good money to do it. So uh, they have a professional responsibility to tell us about this. Yes, they do have a professional responsibility to tell us about this, and uh, they argue that the 25th Amendment is applicable to mental illness as well as to, you know, complete uh, deterioration of the brain or incapacity to move or hear. Their argument is strong that we should 
know what they think of Trump's mental health, uh, whether their argument is strong that they should be the determinators, the determiners of uh, whether a president should serve in office is another one. I mean, there are various sections of this book. One is what's wrong with Trump. Then the middle section is should psychiatrists be even talking about this when he's not their patient? Is that a violation? Or do they have a duty to warn the public? And then the last section is, what's wrong with us that we elected this man president? These are all very good questions. They're great (laughs) questions. The book is truly fascinating. But the second section is the part that disturbs me most because we've seen what happens when psychiatry is in the service of the state during the gulag in the Soviet Union um, and in other places, many other places. Uh, One of the psychiatrists argues that of course he would never participate in a state-mandated psychiatric evaluation but against the state he would but who's to say when that's going to happen or what that means? Trump could be out of office and Mm. you know it just doesn't really it's it's very concerning, and can they really diagnose him? I will say for myself that although I found all the uh, initial essays about his diagnosis very interesting, they're not that far from what we already thought already, from what the L.A. Times wrote when they said he was unfit for office uh, five months after he took office. You know, hedonistic, lost in the present moment, incurious, and narcissistic. I mean... Uh, one of the essays says he is the most dangerous man in the world today. I think mm-hmm. that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, more than Rocket Man, even. <laughs> Kim well, Jong-un. Let's hold off <laughs> on Rocket Man here. And uh, we, have to, let's, we have to talk about the Goldwater rule here, which is yes. an important part of this book. Um, until Trump came along, the psychiatry profession had a firm rule that it is unethical for psychiatrists to diagnose people who they have not personally examined, and this was because in 1964, when Goldwater was the Republican candidate running against LBJ, a bunch of psychiatrists went to the public and said, Goldwater is crazy, he's dangerous, he threatens to destroy the world, and the American Psychiatric Association voted and ruled and made it part of the canon of ethics of the profession that this is improper, unethical, and psychiatrists aren't allowed to do it. And the American Psychiatric Association reaffirmed the Goldwater rule with specific reference to Trump in March 2017, two, three months after he took office. So So they're going against this new reaffirmation of the rule. And, you know, you can see why they did it, because would that we had Goldwater now. You know what I mean? (laughs) So he was crazy to some psychiatrists back then who had never examined him, but if he were the president now, he would seem a lot more uh, sane than Trump. So, I mean, I, I understand why the Psychiatric Association did reaffirm that. However, I think that this book is truly valuable, So I would hate to see them abide by it. And they assert that they are going beyond that rule because they have a duty to warn the public. It's called duty to warn. And the duty to warn is part of the ethical rules of the psychiatric profession. Right, and the duty to warn is if you have a patient who is an imminent threat to others or himself or herself, should she be a female... 
then you have the right to infringe on the patient-doctor confidentiality rule. And? And so they are arguing that Donald Trump poses an imminent threat to humanity. So not just one person, yeah. but all of us here. And thus they have a, a duty to warn, as one of them wrote, no, this is Nanette Gartrell and Dee Musbacker in an essay called He's Got the Whole World in His Hands and His Finger on the Trigger. They wrote, the nuclear arsenal rests in the hands of a president who shows symptoms of serious mental instability. This is an urgent matter of national security. The world as we know it could cease to exist with a 3 a.m. nuclear tweet. The duty to warn clause of the ethical code of psychiatry says specifically psychiatrists are required, required to, quote, report, to incapacitate and to take steps to protect. So they're supposed to incapacitate their patient who's threatening to whatever, kill his wife, kill himself. Right. The image is fabulous of it, like uh, twenty, uh, the 27 authors in this book <laughs> rushing the White House to incapacitate the president. And, <laughs> and take steps to protect. So that's what they are invoking in this book. And right. The, and so they're, what they're saying is that the Goldwater rule and the duty to warn rule are in opposition to each other right now. And that the duty to warn takes precedence because the danger is so great. Now I want to go back to, to what you said. There's a section on the, the first section about diagnosis. You said, well, we pretty much know what they know. Do they know anything we don't know about Trump's narcissism, his aggression? They, they have ways of talking about it. And this is what I think is important for readers. And one reason is that although they say things that we know or have felt... Their analysis is more interesting and more profound because of their professional knowledge and experience. So there's there's also a really wonderful essay by Harper West called In Relationship with an Abusive President. Ah. And it's about uh, domestic abuse and how the president's relationship with the population, at least a segment of it that didn't vote for him, is like uh, his relationship with uh, husbands say uh, relationship with an abused wife well this takes us to part three which is why does the wife stay with the abusive husband and and of course what you could say is well there's nothing in this book really they don't have any any new evidence evidence about Trump that wasn't available during the election and he got elected so what we really should ask is what's wrong with the Trump voters are they crazy rather than what's wrong with him and in Indeed, this is something that's occurred to the editors and the authors, and what do they have to say about this? Well, again, a lot of it is not so surprising to those of us who've been following uh, commentary on Trump and and who've been thinking about Trump. And one of the essays the writer writes about uh, seeing a woman interviewed at a Trump rally, and she says, I want to take my country back. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, he says that's exactly the situation with the Trump voters. They feel they've been removed from the American conversation, that they no longer have a piece of the American pie, that that their income since the 1960s has not changed, the blue-collar worker doesn't have a job, all the things we've been thinking about, about the inequalities in America and the loss of the manufacturing class. So it's not that surprising. Well, it strikes me that what is dangerous about Trump 
isn't so much that he's narcissistic, that he lies. That yeah, there have been other presidents. <laughs> let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, if you know, if you run through our recent presidents, we find many things that are diagnosable. Some were subject to depression. Some were accused of being delusional. Alcoholics. Alcoholics. Compulsive womenizers. The big issue with Trump, it seems to me, that they point to is this combination of a lack of impulse control with this extreme aggression. And if this were a husband who is beating up his wife or kids, you know, that would be an issue for them. But it's the finger on the trigger right. thing. And it's the idea, the too. The nuclear trigger. The it, nuclear trigger. It's the idea, too, that when such a character feels rejection, that's when they become violent. So if he feels somehow he's not managing things or he's not in control, that's when he's most likely to make the impulsive decision to do something really wrong and it is indeed it's the finger on the trigger but uh one of the interesting things that they write about and then i hate to say they it's one writer or another and i'm just remembering someone says trump in that famous hot mic story where he talks about having a woman by her that in fact trump has all of us by the Thank you. P word. Thank you. I don't know if it's sayable on the air. Let's leave it at that. We're leaving it at that. And that that is a problem. We're abused by this person and we haven't found a way to get away from him. And indeed, when you think of the 25th Amendment telling you that the cabinet has to decide if he's unfit or unable, imagine that cabinet. We watched the cabinet sit there while Trump said... How do you like being in my cabinet? And they all went, oh, it's so great, Mr. <laughs> President. You know, he made them publicly suck up to him. So are they going to really, appointed by him, are they going to be the ones to tell us he's mentally unfit? The book is The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. 27 psychiatrists and mental health experts assess a president. We've been speaking with Amy Willens. She's our expert on the 25th Amendment and the, the duty to warn. Amy, thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you, John. Now it's time to talk about climate change and national security. For that, we turn to Bill McKibben. He was one of the first to warn of the dangers of global warming, and he's written about it widely for The New Yorker, The New York Review, Rolling Stone, and The Nation, and also in many books, including The End of Nature and Oil and Honey. He's the founder of the environmental organization 350.org, and he's also a scholar-in-residence at Middlebury College and lives in Vermont. We reached him today in the Adirondacks. Bill McKibben, welcome back. Hey, what a pleasure, John. Well, you write in the new issue of The Nation that climate change is not an environmental issue. What kind of issue is it? Well, I mean, really what climate change is is a lens at through which to look at the world. Uh, it's the most important thing that's going on on the planet. Not that there aren't a million more dramatic things going on every day, but the most important thing that's happening silently for the most part every day is the, the rapid transformation of the earth around us. So in the same way that, say, economic growth was the lens through which we looked at most of the 20th century, and the questions that we asked were usually answered by, will this make the economy bigger or not? 
in, in, in this era, the single most important question we can be asking is, will whatever we're doing help or hinder the efforts to keep the planet from, as it were, burning up and blowing away? Well, the nation has just published a special issue on national security, and you're one of the contributors. The Pentagon, of course, is one of the government institutions responsible for our security. How have they been doing with climate change? (laughs) Well, I I mean, one grades on a curve here. Uh, Compared with the rest of Washington, um, the Pentagon has at least been somewhat reality-based in its dealings with climate change. For 20 years now, there's been a fairly robust understanding inside the Pentagon that this is a big problem. That draws draws from two sources. One, the Pentagon owns an ungodly amount of real estate, as you know, spread out all across the planet, far too much from my point of view. But uh, an awful lot of that real estate is threatened directly by uh, climate change. The Navy has hundreds of installations uh, at threat from sea level rise, including some of its most important and and biggest. That's part of the answer. The other part is that, you know, as people sit down and worry about what kind of threats the planet faces, sort of traditional security terms in the next few decades, it's hard to escape the conclusion that climate change will drive them probably more than any other factor. Uh, The thing that the Pentagon worries about, I think, above all else is instability, knowing that it leads to conflict. And in this case, the instability is profound. And what it leads to, above all, is the mobilization of people, Uh, people fleeing rising seas, people fleeing baking droughts that lead to famine. The great example, of course, is what happened in Syria, where we had the greatest drought in the history of what we once called the Fertile Crescent in the early or in the sort of mid-aughts of this this century. And that helped set in motion the crisis that spun refugees across the planet and in the process destabilized political systems, our own included, in ways that continue up to this day. I mean, it was, uh, you know, sometime in this last week that Donald Trump was tweeting taunts at Angela Merkel about uh, uh, Germany becoming a migrant crime haven or something. Multiply this by 100, and you get a sense of what's likely to happen as the weather deteriorates in the, in the decades ahead. And it's not as if this is some, in any sense, abstract notion. I mean, in the last week, studies emerged demonstrating that the rate of melting in the Antarctic has tripled uh, since 2012. That's precisely the kind of trend that a lot of us had worried about for a long time, and it demonstrates just how fast this crisis is deepening. You say that success for the climate change movement will not mean stopping global warming. That sounds ominous. How do you define success for the climate movement? Well, at this point, I fear it's too late for stopping global warming to be on the list of menu options. And that's a hard thing, of course, for those of us who've been working on this a very long time to say. I mean, we should note in passing that it was 30 years ago, almost to the day, June 23, 1988, when Jim Hansen, NASA scientist, 
stood up in Congress and announced that climate change was underway, really sounding the starter's pistol for what should have been the all-out race to do something about the greatest problem we've ever come up against. Uh, Obviously, we haven't taken it on with the urgency it demanded, and so at this point, we're playing not for stopping global warming, but for limiting it to the point where civilizations as we know them can deal with it. And again, there's no guarantee that that remains possible. Uh, The damage that we've allowed so far is tremendous. There was a study in the last couple of days predicting that in the United States alone, chronic flooding by the later part of the century as sea levels rise will inundate an area of infrastructure larger than the number of buildings and houses in Houston and Los Angeles combined. Wow. Um, and of course, the U.S. Is, will, you know, will, will fare better than an awful lot of other countries around the world as the oceans rise. That's what we're playing for now, trying to limit things to the point where uh, the people who come after us can, can have some hope of dealing with them. And that'll take enormous nimbleness from here on in. So we need action on, on many fronts. What's number one on your list? You want number one, two, and three, maybe? Yeah. Uh, here's the action plan at the moment. One, rapid, rapid conversion to 100% renewable energy, something that's now possible because the engineers have done their job so well and dropped the price of renewable energy so far. Last week, Nevada set the new U.S. record with a big new solar plant coming in at about $0.02 cents a kilowatt hour, a, a truly unheard of price for electricity. Second thing is we have to keep in the ground fossil fuels wherever they are. And the third thing is, and this is something that everybody can work on, whether they live near a coal mine or a pipeline or not, we have to break the power of the fossil fuel industry by cutting the flow of money their direction. That's why the good news about this widespread divestment campaign is one of the things that that gives me hope. We're closing in now on $7 trillion worth of endowments and portfolios that have decided to divest in part or in whole from fossil fuel. And that's taking its toll. You know, the fossil fuel industry is now dramatically underperforming the rest of the economy. And it has enormous political clout, but it's on borrowed time. Our job is to make that time as short as absolutely possible. You listed keeping fossil fuels in the ground as uh, one of the top three. Maybe we should say a word about fracking at this point. Yeah, well, fracking is one of the things that, uh, one of the ways of getting more fossil fuel out of the ground that is spread widely around the world, beginning in the States uh, over the last two decades. And, of course, it's an enormous problem. The methane that's leaking out of these fracking wells and things is is adding to the burden that carbon puts in the in the atmosphere that's why it's so important that's why so many people for instance are demanding that that leaders like jerry brown the governor of california who've done great work on the demand side of the climate equation also take up the supply side and stop uh, granting new permits for oil wells in california Uh, The world will be converging on California in September for uh, a global climate action summit that Brown has called. And the gesture we need from him in part of that is to make it clear that California is ready to begin the kind of phase out of the fossil fuel production industry. That would be a huge step. There's a problem with the news about climate change every day. 
As you say, it's the biggest news on the planet, but it's hardly ever in the headlines. Why, why is that? <laughs> well, because no day is it the single most dramatic thing. I mean, how could it be in the headline, really, uh, you know, given all else that's going on this week? I just, I, I, I spent a little while going through uh, all the op-ed pieces in the New York Times for the first, uh, through the beginning of June this year, so about 660 or so pieces, and of those, six had dealt more, you know, in part or in whole with climate change, uh. Uh, and, and one of those was simply to uh, ball out me and Naomi Klein for uh, not understanding that, that somehow it would all be taken care of uh. because of, uh, I don't know, the wonderful free hand, the invisible hand or something. One percent of, you know, the attention of the world's intellectual space on climate change is clearly not enough, but I have no idea, you know, what I would have done differently if I was running the op-ed page of the Times. I mean, what are you going to do, not cover the Me Too moment, not cover people, people's children being taken away from them by the federal government? I, you know, we live in a moment of enormous drama, and climate change is moves at slightly too slow a scale and, you know, it's moving at an enormously fast scale in kind of geological terms uh, at slightly too slow a scale for the news cycle for the most part. But that's why it's you know important that we keep talking about it whenever we can. And the good news is that it's making a dent. There was a poll last week showing that among progressives in this country, it's now the third most important voting issue. That should be a reminder to our political leaders on the left anyway that the time has come to really talk about it all the time, to make it along with inequality, along with uh, racism and gender inequality, the kind of fourth crucial issue that progressives talk about constantly. And who among our political leaders is doing the best to give climate change the attention it deserves? Well, I got to say, Bernie did a great job, uh, has been doing a great job all along, even though it's clearly not his thing that, you know, moves his heart the most. Um, that would be economic inequality, yeah. as everyone knows. Yeah. But during the first, you know, set of presidential debates, when they said, what's the biggest problem facing the world, without skipping a beat and without appearing to think about it at all, he said, well, obviously climate change, which mm. obviously mm. is true. And that was a very that was a kind of important moment. I think uh, uh, there hasn't been one quite like it before in in U.S. political history. Uh, so now the job is to bring a lot of other people to the same place where they're making it a a priority issue because it has to be a priority issue if we're going to do the things that need to be done to get it tackled. And and I hope that just as the rest of the Democratic Party has started to follow him on things like health care for all and a $15 minimum wage, uh, they'll be following him on keep it in the ground and 100% renewable. Last question. Trump has done many terrible things on climate. What do you think is the worst thing he's done? Well, you're right. The list is extraordinarily long. I think the thing that, that history will judge him most harshly for in climate, and in some ways maybe the most far-reaching of all his efforts so far, was to withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Climate Accords. Not because those were such great accords. Uh, they're at the best a beginning of dealing with this problem. But the fact that the country on the planet that has produced the most carbon, 
altered the atmosphere and hence the temperature most dramatically, is also the only country, literally the only country out of 190-some nations on Earth that refuses to join in the international effort to do anything about it. That is a, um, well, that should should shame us all. There's a lot of things that should shame us all, um, um, but that's high on the list. Bill McKibben, he wrote about catastrophic climate change for the special issue of The Nation on National Security. Read it at thenation.com. Bill, thanks for everything you do, and thanks for talking well, with us today. Back at you, John, and it's always a great pleasure to get to talk and to get to listen to your great work. Okay, thank you very much. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.